Something's wrong with the way we manage water. Systems aren't working as well as they ought to. As climate change bites and urban growth highlights, traditional knowledge is how we restore order. This is Making Waves, the podcast bringing you water stories from around Australia. We are amplifying the lesser heard voices of Aboriginal people and communities. I am your host, Marnie Island. Together, we will explore the fundamental role water plays in the places we live, grow, work and love. I often reflect how very lucky we are to have the opportunity to learn from the world's oldest living continuous culture. In this episode of Making Waves, we explore how traditional knowledge can inform management of surface waters and look on problems that we have with our current management frameworks. I speak with Professor Anne Polina on her country to wake up the snake. And we also speak with Aboriginal Water Officer Nikki Hudson and World Heritage Ranger Aaron Morgan on their country at the UNESCO-recognised Tay Rack in the Bujbim cultural landscape. We bring you one more of those treats from Mark Cole Smith's Kalaji album and we hear some more pearls of wisdom from our future water managers. So let's board our trusty rafts and cast off into the river. It's a long way for most of us to get to Broome, but when you hear what Aunt Paulina has to say, speaking on her own country, I think you'll agree it was well worth the trip. So let's hear now Anne's eloquent and powerful perspectives on water justice. We acknowledge the Yawu people as the traditional owners of the lands and waters in and around Rubibi, the town of Broome, in the Kimberley region of Northern Western Australia, on which we meet for our podcast conversation today. We pay our respects to Yawu elders, past, present and emerging. There's something going on here that is a real counterpoint to the issues we've been examining on the Eastern Seaboard. Specifically, what is being achieved in the careful and considered decision-making processes occurring to protect and manage the Fitzroy River and its vast catchment in the West Kimberley. Professor Anne Polina is a Nyakina Warawa traditional custodian from the Madawara Lower Fitzroy River in Western Australia. A professor and senior research fellow at the Nulungu Research Institute at the University of Notre Dame and the managing director of the indigenous not-for-profit organisation Majula, based in Broome. Anne has worked incredibly successfully on issues of environmental and cultural protection in the Kimberley and has more qualifications than you can poke a stick at, including two PhDs and three Masters. 
Anne is Chair of the Motawara Fitzroy River Council, an active community leader, human and earth rights advocate and filmmaker. She is also the Murray-Darling Basin inaugural First Nations appointment to its Independent Advisory Committee on Social, Economic and Environmental Sciences and was recently awarded the Kailisa Budiva Earth and Environment Award this year's International Women's Day in recognition of her global standing. So I think you might agree, coming to Broome to hear from Anne directly is a golden opportunity not to miss and thank you so much for your time up front, Anne. To get us started, could you perhaps tell us about your water journey? Mabubara, ngajunu nilawala and pelina ngayu imadwara manan ngai mandajara nyigena ngai nyigena nganga ngai nganga in Broome in Jugun and Yaru country ngayu Broome my home. So in my language, I said hello. My name is Anne Pelina, and I'm a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River, and that we're talking to you today um, in Broome which is recognised by me as Jugun and Yaru country. So it's a great opportunity to have a Mabu Ngurinyan Nganga with you today. A very happy and good-spirited conversation. Thank you. That is wonderful, Anne. Your water journey probably starts many millennia ago. <laughs> Could you perhaps share with us, in an abbreviated form, how you've come to be where you are today? Yeah, now look, thanks for the opportunity to share with listeners. Um, yeah, it does go way back. I remember a couple of years ago doing a an interview with Richard Feidler on the ABC and it started when I was five. He actually came up to talk about Broome, but I took him back to the river and told him of a, of a very unusual journey along the river. So my life has been very much immersed in both saltwater because my father was a hard hat diver in Broome and we grew up in a very amazing place in the middle of Chinatown with many, many, many different types of cultures around us. But my mother is the traditional owner from the Fitzroy River. Originally, her great-grandmother, my great-grandmother actually, came in in about 1867 after a very big massacre in the George Range. We call that place Gundara. And so my great-grandmother's family were mainly massacred in that range and she was brought into Nukumbar. And then my grandmother, uh, Emily Watson, was produce of a very beautiful uh, love affair she had with an amazing man. And my grandmother was born in Nukumbar. So, yeah, it's a very, very long story. So um, with the river, we're all connected. Every Aboriginal person in the Kimberley is connected to the river. And we're connected because this river is a living ancestral being. And we are all one society under the river law. Wallangari law. So the law of obligation, ethics of care and love to look after that river and protect it, but not just for Aboriginal people, for non-Indigenous people, for visitors. I mean, the river is national heritage listed, so it belongs to all Australians. And there's so many non-Indigenous families that have fallen in love with that river and continue to create their memories. So we say the river belongs to all of us. So the guardianship responsibility we have is to care for the river for everybody. That's wonderful, Anne. We've just scratched the surface. But for those who may be unfamiliar, here's a bit of context. The Fitzroy River, also known as Rapa Rapa, is that correct? Madawara. Madawara? Yeah, the Madawara. 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 Great. Madawara is located in the West Kimberley region of Western Australia. It has 20 tributaries and its catchment area occupies over 93,000 square kilometres within the Canning Basin, which flows into the Timor Sea. It's massive. As part of the Government of Western Australia's commitment to sustainable economic development in the Fitzroy River uh, catchment, 
It's developing a water allocation plan for surface water and groundwater resources in the area. And, and I understand, now I, we just had a conversation that perhaps it's the wrong terminology to talk about cultural flows assessment. Maybe it's more of a, a living waters perspective. Can you tell us about how you recognise the needs of the river and recognise rivers as living entities? Yeah, no, we, we've actually gone with the terminology or the frame of living waters because we believe that water is a living system. It has a spirit, it holds memory, it generates energy. So for us, it's more than just talking about it from a cultural flow perspective, though I know that is much broader definition, but our elders who give us the cultural authority to frame these things publicly have said that we need to talk about it from a living water perspective because it is a living being that we communicate with, we cry with it, we sing with it, we dance with the river. And what we're saying is that this living system, we believe, is fully allocated. It's allocated to all of the tributaries, to groundwater, to the trees, the birds, the fish, all of those things. So any take from the river, particularly even with groundwater, is seen as water extraction. I'm really interested in the processes of recognising those living entities' rights as part of this government process. That seems like it, it's, it's worked. You've, your voices have been heard. Would you reflect on that? It's all about yeah, I guess in a way an emergence of getting these sorts of frames out into the public domain and, and to just claim that space and say, no, this is how we define it and it's up to us to look at how we do that. I guess from the river perspective, yeah, I was quite excited when I saw the Wanganui or the Fanganui and how it had been granted personhood and how it had legal standing under that frame. And I came back, you know, came back from a conference over east and I was all excited and I mentioned to the elders, oh, you know, personhood for a river. And they looked at me as if I was crazy. And they said, he not a human being. And I, I realised, yes, I was in so close, I'd missed the obvious. So the river is not a human being. It is an ancestral being. And one of the things that um, we're doing with amazing legal scholars is we're looking at how do we have this emergence in terms of legal pluralism around ancestral beings because up here we're talking about the rainbow serpents that are our ancestral beings but I know there's the Murray Cod and there's mountains that are very magic and they're seen as ancestors as well so we're putting this frame out there we're transforming even just the dialogue of legal pluralism and I'm just about to produce a, a very impressive piece of work that's been done by six critical Indigenous think tank leaders um, in Australia where we're looking at the fusion of first law with common law and crown law. So when, you know, Paddy Rowe, who was an amazing Nigan elder and lived in Broome and many people know of him, basically what he said is when you have these great ideas and you think about them, think about them as a dream, but you have to think about it and push that dream out, but you can't just push it out. You actually have to walk in it and make it turn into reality. So that's what we're doing with ancestral personhood, even to the point that the river is first author on many of our publications. And so we're pushing the boundaries and we're, we're um, doing things that we believe will activate um, a common good for all of us. So ancestral being is very much on the agenda, not just here in this country, but the work we do is global. That is so exciting and wonderful in terms of outcomes, not just for First Nations peoples, but communities in general, because the health of, of the system is what sustains all all members of the community and I wondered if perhaps you could reflect on that a little bit and also how that is translated into I think I saw the Margaret River having a new national park 
granted to it. Is that a direct result of this of this thinking? One of the things we have in first law, our law as Indigenous people, is that people speak for their own country. We call it their Rome. So people are entitled to look at a whole range of different sorts of just development and look at how that can create jobs and how it can add value to the region, how it might be able to influence some of the economies that we need coming into local government. So from that perspective, it is quite broad in terms of thinking about it in that way. But I think there's really what we're saying is that this river is national heritage listed. It's also the largest Aboriginal cultural heritage site in Western Australia. So it has enormous value and it is really, really amazing. The point I want to make about national parks, and I mean, I think Kakadu's been um, on the public record, one of the things that we're saying is that why can't we co-design these sorts of national parks and give total ownership to Aboriginal people and then look at how can the state maybe transition that process very, very quickly to surrender that um, ownership because everything is about perspective and I think one of the things I'm seeing is that there are models where national parks have been created and Aboriginal people have not needed to surrender their land to the state or to the territory in order to have a co-management arrangement. So one of the things I'm saying is that okay well maybe we need to take some small steps with these sorts of initiatives but the big issue I've had always with the state government was why don't you make the whole river a national park. Why are you continuing this process of, oh, we'll give a little bit here and we'll give a little bit there, but we'll take a lot of it over here. So I think when we have a national park for the whole of the Fitzroy River, then that'll be time for me to celebrate. And what I want to say is good on these leaders who are stepping up and getting national parks in their areas. But I think one of the things that we talk about under Wollongari law as one society is that we need common ground for the common good of all. And this little bit of giving this one a national park and that one doesn't sit. So the day that I see the whole of the river listed as a national park, I will be out there dancing on the riverbed and singing songs to you all. Great. I hope to be up here um, doing the same next to you. <laughs> what we've talked about there is is still almost a piecemeal approach to decision-making. So this concept of placemaking or collective decision-making seems to be the golden ticket or of, of where we all want to go collectively as society. Can you reflect on where you've experienced that or, or what, what the challenges are in achieving that? What the challenges are in terms of getting good governance or what's the challenge in regards to how do we come to just development from a regional perspective where we're all at the table and everybody is informed about decision making and we can really look at, okay, what's on the table and what's off the table. I think the biggest thing for me is that, um, and other Indigenous leaders, is that we're not saying, oh, the river's just for us and protect it just for us and we don't want nobody coming here. What we're saying is that water is the new gold. Mm. As rivers around the world are drying up, no longer flowing, water is the new gold. We know the story from the Murray-Darling Basin. We know that what you see is an immense amount of foreign ownership of the water. You know, the floodplain harvesting has been a very, very big issue. The fact that people are not really factoring in climate science and country and living waters and rivers and cultural flows are changing. So one of the things is I think we need to have certainty. We are told as Aboriginal people that we need to give big business certainty, but what we're saying is that we need our regional communities to have certainty. We need a way for people in the regions to come together and understand 
what is the total impact of development. And so this is some of the things that I've been strongly advocating to the government is we can't just come in and say, oh, we're going to do a water allocation plan for the river and we might do something in Derby because we're lacking the science. I mean, there has been some studies done by CSIRO, but I think one of the big things, if you talk to really um, informed scientists that are working at a global and national level, what they're saying is that there's uncertainty because we don't know this system. What really concerns me is that nobody in Derby, nobody in Broome, and very, very few people in Fitzroy actually know what the government plans are. So what I'm saying to government is that, okay, what, how can we learn from the Murray-Darling Basin? How can we um, establish uh, a, a catchment authority or a watershed authority or a bioregional framework working with local government? Why can't we all sit at the table and people with their great ideas for development, why can't they put their development projects on the table, subject it to scientific and peer review, have a think about it. If there's a cost benefit, bring it on. If it's a cost burden and it's just going to destroy the country, the land, the people, well, you know what you can do with it. But so what we're saying is that it's really, really time for um, people to wake up. We call it wake up the snake. Wake up the snake means how do you wake up the consciousness of the people? You, everyday listeners who are listening to this podcast, why should you be interested in the Kimberley? And what we're saying when we look at the science globally is that these last bastions of biodiversity, these last greenfield areas that are being held under the guardianship of Indigenous people in our nation but across the world really needs to be valued for their true value to what these living systems are doing in terms of sustaining humanity and the planet. So I think there's some real calculations that needed to be added up. It's no longer just about counting, it's what counts and what we see is a real clash of values and I think it's time to go back to the people and bring the people with us and my solution is through bioregional frameworks. This is a Commonwealth policy until 2030. Why aren't we being brave and investing in these sorts of scenarios so that families and communities in the regions can have certainty? What we're seeing is that we're seeing changes in democracy. And this is really interesting because my mother, as you said, you know, how does water come all the way through? But my mother used to say to me, like, she used to challenge her own mind and thinking um, she grew up in a time when the globe was really coloured all red and it really belonged to the British and you could see colonialism across the world. But she used, before she died, she used to say, like, are they really the peak of civilization, Anne? Because what I'm seeing them doing is quite, you know, foolhardy. And so what we're saying is that governments are there as the mechanism to govern for the people, but what we see right around this country is really that governments are there in a caretaker role for the multinationals and the big corporations, and ordinary people do not matter. And so what I'm saying is that we can do this differently, we must do it differently. This river belongs to all of us, particularly our non-Indigenous families and friends. And, you know, those pastoralists who've been there for years and years and years, they're part of this system. So what we're saying is that we need a way that we can have some sort of bio-regional uh, framework, working with local government, bringing everyone to the table so people can make united, cooperative, informed decision-making. And that way we will all then be... It's up to us which way we go, up or down or roundabout. But I think there really needs to be, the community need to be informed because what is being proposed without legislation, without a catchment authority and with very little science, particularly climate science, all I can see is foreseeable harm. And for the Indigenous people that live in the catchment who are so reliant on an everyday basis for their, not just sustainable living, 
but sustainable lifeways is that we are showing that country is changing. Climate change is real, people. It's changing our food systems, it's changing our water scarcity, and it's changing the environment in which we are living. So we have to wake up, as we say, wake up the snake, otherwise we'll all be dumbed down and asleep in our dreams and we will no longer have a planet. Wow, Anne, you have my vote. Thank you so much for your time. There's just one really important final question we have to ask all of our interviewees, and that's, what's your favourite water song and why? Well, it's actually a good question, actually, because my son has just produced an amazing album, um, very acoustic-wise. He's written the songs, he's produced it, he's sung them, um, and there's one really special song that he has on his album, and it's called... It, the album is called Gullaji, and Gullaji means whirlwind, so my son is a whirlwind. He's up there with all the big famous people. I won't say his real name. <laughs> but um, he's produced a beautiful album, and it, the album's called Gullaji, and there's a song on there about dreaming country, and oh, wow. that is just so beautiful. I wonder if we might even be able to include a little snippet or something to follow up this wonderful interview. Mm. And Paulina, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no. So I'm just saying, until we meet again, it's been a great conversation and I do hope that some of these words have resonance because it's time for all of us as Australians to wake up. Your DNA is now embedded in this landscape. You need to grow an ethics of care and love this place because it is your home. So and we'll talk again soon. Wow. Did Anne Paulina wake up the snake or what? Water really is the new gold, and if that's not a compelling argument for united cooperative decision-making, I don't know what is. Now we get to hear our next treat from Mark Cole-Smith's debut album, Kalaji. This is my favourite song, Yulbaru, long ago. See if you can find yourself a set of headphones and a quiet spot near a river to listen. Close your eyes and you will be transported somewhere beyond this present world.
Isn't that just amazing? We are so incredibly delighted to be incorporating these little gems from Mark Cole Smith's debut album, Kalaji, in the Making Waves podcast, specifically as a hook for engaging with the broader community about why they should care about water and country. Troy McDonald. Marnie Island, and I'm delighted to be embarking on this podcast journey with you. Can you maybe share with our audience why you wanted to do the podcast and perhaps your water journey? Yeah, thanks for that, Marnie. Um, I just before we kick off, I just want to acknowledge that today we're meeting on the lands of the, the Wurundjeri people here at the uh, convent in uh, Abbotsford, in Melbourne, and do appreciate the opportunity to to share some views and insights. But I can open up with say that I haven't always had an interest in this. I was somewhere how pressed into service from a cultural perspective, 
by my mother and to to a degree my brother who were activists in the space in the 90s, mid-90s. So, um, yeah, look, my world of journey uh, started then and uh, didn't have a lot of interest in it. But the observations I made across Victoria with the emergence of a really strong traditional owner movement that was interested in amplifying their rights through land management, water management, and that had really strong links to self-determination. I thought, well, there's some legacy work I've got to really follow up here. And what happened is a role came up into the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning where they established a Aboriginal water unit. That came before Water for Victoria and I applied for that job. But the great thing about that job was it got me back on country and really started triggering my interest in the, the connection between water, waterway and riverway health and community wellbeing. And I really, that carried me through to my role in Glarwack, the Gunai Kurnai Land and Waters Aboriginal Corporation that didn't have water entitlements and yet we had water in our name uh, as a traditional owner group. So the natural progression for me as one of the many leaders in that organisation was to prosecute a, um, a position on water where our people could gain some shared benefits from some unallocated water, some water un- unallocated water allotments uh, out of the Mitchell River. And I guess that's just a tiny part of the journey that's led me here today. Trust is as slippery as a basket full of eels. So we've been thinking about recognition of rivers as ancestral beings and reallocation of water rights to make sure the needs of all are recognised. Let's see how this is panning out at the UNESCO World Heritage listed Bim Cultural Landscape in southwest Victoria. We're about to chat with Aaron Morgan and Nikki Harding about cultural flows at Tay Rack or Lake Conda. And we pay our respects to Gunditjmara people and elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging that these lands and waters were never ceded. We fluked it for the first day of the opening of the Cultural Heritage Centre here at Burj Bim and Tayrak. And I've snared a couple of moments with Aaron Morgan, who is the World Heritage Ranger here. And I think he might be able to tell us a little bit more about where my amazing tasting platter lunch came from, because I think it's been a 30-year journey. Aaron, could you tell us a bit about your water journey? My water journey, I suppose, just starts from the old people. You know, the old people use the same waters that I use today, you know, for to make a living pretty much of harvesting these large amounts of eels and other fish species and um, harvesting the, the vegetation. And we use that um, same concept into our menu at the aquaculture centre here. We have a different variety of uh, eels, eel balls, lemon myrtle, flavoured chicken. It's pretty cool to take a bit of the history from uh, you know this great place, this great great cultural place, and put it into a menu to show uh, you know lots of uh, tourists that want to come and see your country and come and see the story of the Gunashamara. And it's an amazing place that we are sitting. We're surrounded by black swans. Just heard a plover. We saw a bunjil. 
sawing around in these pelicans. But what are we looking out over here, Aaron? So we're looking across Lake Condor onto what we call the Stone Country or Tungat Mirring. So it's uh, Budgebeam's lava flow. He, yeah, 37,000 years ago, he spewed his teeth and blood through the landscape. And Budgebeam was looked at as our creative being for Gunnishma around here. So he gave us the necessary resources we needed to you know, construct our, our channels and our aquaculture systems and our surrounding houses too. So if it wasn't for Budgebeam, you know, we wouldn't have had uh, the, the volcanic rock which made them structures and we wouldn't have that history of, you know, over six and a half thousand years, is, that's all what we know about, but six and a half thousand years of history, which we can still go out and I can point my finger to the same structures. It's just amazing. And what were those structures doing? Try paint a picture, see. So we got this big, say we got this lake here, and um, the lava flow, it has a lot of different features on it. There's lots of, you know, sinkholes in that, you know, within the lava flow. And it's right on the edge of the lake. And these sinkholes would fill up with water, you know, when it rained and that. The old people would see that. And my theory is we would have just saw it and thought, if we can get this water here, we could hold all these eels. So we built channels into the bedrock of the volcanic rock. And it pretty much changed the water course to get the water from the lake into the sinkholes where it's much more shallow and it creates the, the perfect habitat for the eels itself. If it's shallow and it's you know creating the, the good habitat for the eels, they'd be more than happy to go in there, I suppose. Yeah. So you're pretty much funneling a bunch of eels into these sinkholes that we have scattered through the landscape. When the water recedes, they, the channels, they lose the water in it, so the sinkholes are just there as their own body of water full of eels pretty much. Uh, the thing is with eels, they can um, they can take in oxygen through their skin and um, leave that sinkhole if you know they wanted to, if they were hungry and they want to go look through, you know, look for other waterholes. So we were, um, you know, as Gunnishmar people would combat that by throwing a kangaroo leg or something in there to keep them fed, to keep them satisfied. So you know that's the difference between you know catching eels and farming eels. We're actually making sure they they get fat enough so we can harvest them at the right time, harvest them for trading purposes or for our own purposes. That's quite amazing. So the world's oldest aquaculture system right here, you can see why it's UNESCO listed now, but I believe getting that World Heritage status was a fairly arduous process. How long did it take? Much longer than what I've been on this earth for. So yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm 26 now. um, I've heard my uncles and that talk about Back in the you know the nineties and that they had aspirations of you know three things of reflooding Lake Honda, getting world heritage status and rebuilding the the church at the mission. You know, thirty years later we've ticked off two of them three boxes for you know our, our aspirations, which was the reflooding the lake and and getting world heritage. So it was yeah it's a long long journey. I think we started off in the early two thousand getting national heritage that was the first step, but it was a lot of lobbying with the government agencies and that. Just to, I suppose, get our case out there, we um, had to get ICOMOS down there, an advisory body of uh, UNESCO, and they advised the World Heritage Committee. I think after that we were on the tentative list. So that was just another two years of waiting around, and then come 2019 the decision was made, but upon going over there we um, had no, no idea 
if we were going to get it or not. We just thought we travelled 18 hours across the world just to sit in a meeting, which it, which it really was until our matter come up, pretty much, our decision. Yeah, I, I was over there for, for the decision. It was in Azerbaijan, in Baku, was the city. It was pretty... It was pretty cool. Once we got up, the chairperson and that talked to Uncle Dennis, and Uncle Dennis talked on behalf of all Gunnishmar people and all the Australian party also, because this is um, this is an Australian achievement. I imagine 2019 is a couple of years ago now, but I'm just imagining the euphoria of after so many years of striving. Have you noticed any? changes since the decision? Yeah, well, I think the first change notice is when we're still in Azerbaijan, we're getting messages from the mob back home that the tour phones just wouldn't stop going off. I was um, used to do a few tours back in the day around that time. We used to get about probably 10 calls a week. And then um, that after the decision, it was we were getting about 10, 15 calls a day probably. And it wasn't just from around here, it was international calls too, so it was... You know, the news just goes out that quick. It's, yeah, it's surreal that we're pretty much on the same platform as Stonehenge and the pyramids and that. It's a good, good feeling. It is quite amazing. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about this amazing place? Just get out of here when you can, you know, if you, if you can. You know, we're very happy to take care to show you this yeah, amazing landscape. And I've just flicked it here for the first day of of tours and the opening of the cafe, so I fully endorse Get Out Here. It is amazing. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you very much. So great to hear from Aaron Morgan about what we can now enjoy at Tayrak. But there's also some really interesting cultural flows background we can explore. Let's hear more from Nikki Hudson. Our conversation today is taking place at an incredibly important site on Gunditjmara country. We're about to chat with Nikki Hudson, who's the Aboriginal Water Officer with Gunditjmering Traditional Aboriginal Owners Corporation. The Gunditjmara Traditional Owners Community established Gunditjmering in 2005 to ensure that cultural obligations and responsibilities, which arise under Gunditjmara law, custom and beliefs, are upheld and recognised. Maintaining the flows of water over country is an essential part and aspect for managing the cultural values of Bujbim, which contains the world's most extensive and oldest aquaculture system. It's a complex system of channels, weirs and dams developed by Gunditjmara people to trap, store and harvest kuyang, or the short-finned eel. So let's hear more about this amazing place. Nikki, can you tell us a bit about your water story? Uh, So I started with Gunditjmaring in the water space probably about two years ago. But I'm very passionate about water and am an angler. I like to get out of my kayak and do some fishing. I also insist that I live near the water, mainly the ocean. My partner's sort of tried to move away inland a bit where it's a bit warmer, but... No, uh, for me, I, I need to be near water and, yeah, it enriches my soul. That's been coming through from nearly everyone we've spoken to, mm-hmm. the importance of water in place. 30 years is a long time in the making. That's going to require a fair amount of tenacity and I imagine there's been a few people involved. Can you tell us a bit about what the biggest challenges might have, might have been along that 30-year journey? Many elders, I think, were involved in the process of you know, collecting data, getting all the documentation together and 
to satisfy the requirements to apply for World Heritage. So it was a very long journey. Yeah, and I think once you have that data and visual of the landscape itself to show UNESCO, you can see it's quite obvious that it is a very old, ancient agriculture system. It's amazing, and I think it's it's the recognition that's quite mind-blowing. It's been sitting right here, it's been under our noses, but we had to jump through all these hoops and get UNESCO to acknowledge what you guys probably knew. And I, I, I just I've, I wonder about the... Was it the international recognition that we needed to really value what was right here on our doorstep? Uh, I don't think to value. For us, we, we value. It's a very special place and significant place for us. And it's about the protection. I think mm. the World Heritage happened to help protect the very special um, and ancient agriculture system. That's a really important point I think you're making there, that the UNESCO recognition maybe helps with some of the governance that you need to do what you want to do to manage the landscape here. So I'm really interested, very, very recently, just a few months ago, there was a 2.5 gigalitre water allocation into Tayrak. Is that 2.5 gigalitres, is that enough under Gunditjmara law, custom and beliefs to do what you want to do at this location? Um... No, no. 2.5 gigalitre of unallocated water was available to anyone in the community. So that's what we applied for. We couldn't apply for any more. We just sort of applied for what was available or put up for sale. We applied for it and we received it, but it's definitely not enough. No. There's been a few conversations around place-based planning where all of the demands for water are put on the table up front and then you look at what you've got available. It seems like that might be something that needs to be holistically looked at so that it's not the leftovers, it's well, what are your requirements and what do we all have and, and how do we equitably share outcomes because some of them might be complementary. Yeah, definitely. The licence term really needs to be re-looked at some farmers and estates having lifetime licences does not suit the environment. They may use it for farming, damming, irrigation and things like that, but with climate change coming along as well, we really need to look at what the environment itself needs to be sustainable, you know, for the people on the land, for our plant species that we harvest, you know, and for the aquatic species in waterways and bird life and everything so it's all connected and without enough water to continue to support that life that's a big issue there so because we absolutely do want to have healthy environments and aquatic environments but they're not mutually exclusive from economic outcomes as we've seen today the first day of incredibly important tourism I would suggest based on the health of the environment and the, and the restoration of cultural values. Yeah, definite changes need to be made. So during the application process to apply for water, it's stated in the application, what is the water to be used for? It says irrigation, agriculture, 
where is a dam going to be put so that you can harvest your water or whatnot. So there's nothing in the application process that says anything about cultural water for cultural economies for the Indigenous people of the country. So there's definitely change needs to be made there that water for Aboriginal people and Aboriginal country needs to be recognised, you know, because we jump through the same hoops as agricultures or farmers and whatnot and irrigators, but we're not recognised on the application document as needing water for cultural economies. It's been wonderful talking with you, Nikki. We always like to finish up with our favourite question from all of the people we speak with. What's your favourite water song and why? Yeah, I thought about this earlier. I have a couple of favourite, as the rain starts coming down, I have a couple of favourite songs, but they're not probably what you... There's, there's no right so my my ringtone is like a river Lovely. for my phone, but that is I think it's appropriate to my job being a water yeah. officer. Who's like a river by? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the sound of it because I like songs that tend to make me feel good about myself. So yeah. like a river and you know ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> You know, that song as well is is just gold for me, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being out on country with us and speaking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Nikki's really raised some practical examples of how we need to continue to evolve our management of water resources. Like the relentless drip of water on a stone We need to work at a practical level to realise some of those big concepts we've talked about with some of our previous guests. What amazing insights. And for those interested in the evolving Making Waves playlist, Nikki's song Like a River is by Bishop Briggs. And now let's hear a final tidbit from our future water managers. So can you tell us your name, please? Gilbert. And how old are you, Gilbert? Eight. Gilbert, can you tell us why water is important? It keeps everything alive. Can you tell us where water comes from when it comes out of the tap at your place? The ocean, because rain comes from the ocean and rain falls into our tank and then the family turn the tap on and then we have water and also we have a bore. Okay, so there's a few different places water comes from at your place. What happens when you flush the toilet? Where does the water and the waste go? To a plant sewage system. Wow. Wow, that sounds complicated. You've got your own treatment system at your house? Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? No. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) All right. So you're compatriot here. What's your name, sir? Smith. And how old are you, Smith? Eight. So, Smith, why why do you think water's important? Because it keeps everything alive. How does it do that? Because the rain pours onto it and it makes everything grow. Smith, mm. where does the water come from at your place? Uh, the tanks. Tanks, okay. So you're, you've got rainwater tanks yeah. that give you the water that you drink. When you flush your toilet at home, what happens? The water goes into the toilet and it goes into a tank. Into another tank. Then what happens? And then... One's a poop tank and one's a normal water tank. That's not the water that you drink though, is it? No. So where does the water go once it's been treated? Into our taps. Interesting.
thanks Gill and Smith from Dalesford Dharma School. I reckon I might get those two onto managing my on-site treatment system. We extend our sincere gratitude to the Water Services Association of Australia and the nine water authorities who gave the support and creative licence for this podcast. Thank you City West Water, Hunter Water, Icon Water, SA Water, Sydney Water, Taz Water, Unity Water, Water Corp and Yarra Valley Water. Thanks also to ex-UK pop star James Henderson for our beautiful theme music and thank you so much for our awesome producer and special guest interviewer, Nance Haxton. We hope this has whet your appetite. Troy and I look forward to chatting with you in the next episode of Making Waves. Series 1 of the Making Waves podcast was created over a two-year period spanning mid-2020 to mid-2022. The views and perspectives presented are those of the individuals speaking. They do not necessarily represent the views of the organisations associated with individuals or the funders and supporters.